The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Now, t- joining us for the week trending, we have Kieran Cunningham, Chief Sports Writer from the Irish Daily Star, and freelance arts and culture journalist Kate DeMolder. Now, we've been talking a bit this week in our business news, and we will be with Ian Guider again about what's happening at the Web Summit. The Web Summit is something that has been going on since I think it was 2010 was the first year. Indeed, we at Today FM in the last word were involved in the very first Web Summit. I did an interview with uh, Jack Dorsey, the man behind Twitter, in front of just dozens of people in a lecture hall in Trinity College. And Web Summit from the small beginnings has grown to be something absolutely enormous, so much so that it left Dublin in 2016 with Paddy Cosgrave, one of the founders, saying that it wasn't big enough to facilitate the numbers. So, Kate, the Lisbon event next month, just how many people is it that have booked to actually go who are expected to attend in Lisbon? So it's understood that 70,000 people had bought tickets. Um, That number seems to be dwindling now. Obviously, tickets are already bought, but who knows what the actual number is going to be. We've heard that um, a number of companies have pulled out. Intel, Siemens, Google in the past few minutes have just um, confirmed that they're out as well. And apparently Stripe. The Collison brothers are also believed to be gone. So, um, yeah, it seems to be a pretty bad week to work at Web Summit. It does indeed. Now, Kieran Cunningham, this has all come around because of... And this is ironic in some respects when I say that I interviewed Jack Dorsey at Twitter at the first Web Summit. It's all because of Paddy Cosgrave's behaviour on his tweets. And yet, the tweet that has caused him all of the problem, by comparison with many of those that he's put about Irish politics in recent years, was mild. Indeed, I suggest it might be one that a lot of Irish people might actually have agreed with. Yeah, he, he he was critical of Israel's re, uh, reaction to the to what happened to the, to the deadly attack by Hamas, uh, and uh, you know he used the word war crimes. He said war crimes are, are war crimes. You know, no matter if it's your rallies doing them, and a lot of people would agree with that. And as you say, Paddy Cosgrove has been a very controversial figure in social media. You know, there have been defamations suits or threats of defamation as well over things he said on Twitter. But I think in this case, a lot of people would agree with him. And But to me, it highlights, um, because a lot of these, uh, a lot of tech companies, you know, the US is where it's at for them. They're either based there or that's their main market. And it's very hard to say anything in the US that is in any way critical of Israel. And a lot of people are conscious of that. Like I actually I had a conversation earlier with Trevor Hogan for Peace Tomorrow. Trevor, who used to play rugby for uh, Munster and Leinster, and he he was involved in the Freedom Flotilla to Gaza twelve years ago, and he's very much been involved in in the Palestinian cause. And I talked to him about Mohammed Salah's statement, which. Uh, Mohammed Salah took a lot of criticism in Egypt for saying nothing about what had been happening in Gaza and Israel. And given he's one of the most high-profile Islamic figures in the world, given his status, uh, there was pressure on him. And uh, during his career, Salah has given very few interviews, and the interviews he has done are very bland. But I thought his statement was quite good. You know, he was calling for humanitarian aid to Gaza. I thought it was quite strong. But Trevor Hogan made an interesting point to me. He said he doesn't mention the word Israel in his statement. Now, it's like he's talking about a natural disaster. But what's happened to Gaza and Palestine is not a natural disaster. It's from the actions of a state. And I I would have sympathy for Paddy Cosgrove in this. 
it, it is, I think, Kate de Mulder, fair to say that it is difficult for many people to actually to speak about what's happening or write about happening without really bringing wrath of others down upon them. Certainly, and I think um, a lot of the big names, um, as Kieran was saying, like they would be kind of US-based. It is trickier over there. Um, Julian Anderson, for example, a lot of people saw that she pulled out. A lot of people ask why she was involved, but a lot of people asked that she pulled out. And I was just looking up, she was recently in a film that's um, just come out called White Bird, which is about uh, Nazi-occupied France. So obviously she has those ideas at the front forefront of her mind. And also Hollywood is, Judaism is hugely popular in Hollywood. So she has to be very careful of what she says. So likely this is a work-based decision and that's that. Okay, let's move on to other things. Now, this is one that I know Kate isn't particularly interested in. So, Kieran, I'm going to ask you to tell us all about what has been going on with Kilku, one of the most prominent Gaelic football clubs in the country, and their objection to having a particular referee for the Down County final last week. Since when are clubs allowed to dictate who can referee their games? Well, the, the, they aren't really allowed to dictate it. And, you know, that's this ended up going to, you know, the DRA, who, who made that pretty clear. That the, the, uh, so the DRA you know, been the Dispute Resolution Authority. Authority, yeah. So originally a guy called Paul Falloon was down to referee the county final in Dan uh, between Kilku and Byrne. And Kilku would be the biggest... Um, you know, they've been very successful in recent years and they objected. Now, he would be considered as Dan's best referee and he's on the national refereeing panel. And they objected to the board over the appointment. According to Dan GA's own statement, I quote, on the grounds of perceived bias. I know that's a, I know that's a, a really strong statement to make about any referee. And I think it's completely wrong. And I think to me, to be honest, what it highlights most of all, Matt, is there's people within the GA and a lot of pundits particularly, who talk up the club, you know, as being something uh, magical and mystical. Sacred. And far, far sacred and far superior to the inter-county game. But to me, it's, a, it's, a, it's often a nest of vipers, and there's a lot more dodgy behaviour and people pulling strokes. I know David Goff, who is probably the best referee in Ireland, was approached to referee this game. I don't think he knew exactly what had been going on. And he did pull out, you know, because it would have been very wrong to, you know, be, uh, to go in ahead of a colleague. I don't know why the guy who refereed it in the end uh, decided he should do it, but he made his own decision. But I think uh, Kilku have behaved badly. Like Kilku have enjoyed a lot of success in recent years, and they've been built up because it was an ideal, because it's a small little village, a couple of families backbone in the team. But this kind of behaviour doesn't sit well, and it, you know, it's something the GA should come down on hard and say so you can no club. And no county, and at, at any level, you know, at any, no matter what level you're at, the GA can go trying to dictate the appointment of a referee, and also alleging perceived bias, which is a very strong allegation to be actually making. It, yeah. it does raise a question as well, though. I mean, who would be a referee, and do people actually in the sport, and indeed other sports, consider that you know, if we continue this attitude towards referees, we won't have any of them, and therefore there won't be games. Yeah, absolutely. And I thought that there was a very interesting line uh, from Paul Falloon that he offered to be mic'd up for the game. And I thought that was very interesting. And, you know, you know, is, you know, is there a hint there that, you know, he people then might get an indication of what has been said to him during games, you know, what he and what referees have to put up with. And I think, you know, when you do when you say stuff like perceived bias, 
you know, you you are putting yourself in a very uh, dodgy position because this could end up in court. Like it's a very, it's a very you're getting into dangerous territory when you're accusing anybody in any field of bias. Okay, now let's talk to you, Kate Mulder, about Time Out magazine dis- describing Smithfield in Dublin as the second coolest place on earth. What can you tell us about this? So I actually wrote this piece, Matt. What? Uh, You're the person who wrote it? I did. I was the person who dictated it. And um, it's gotten a lot of traction this week, as it often does. I've been a working journalist in a newsroom when this piece has come in and it it always comes with a hint of begrudgery, doesn't it? Um, So yeah, this piece came in. I was asked to write it about a month ago. And uh, the the way the piece works is the timeout by way of its readers and subscribers um, gets sent in a number of places in Dublin that people from that area suggest could be the coolest place. So you have about eight places. Um, and I don't remember all of them, but I remember two of them coming in that were Dalky and Ranlang. Could you imagine if I had picked either of them? So anyway, <laughs> so out of the list, the one I chose was Smithfield. And it's something I stand by. Um, I'm a big lover of trad music. I thought it was my definition of cool was when musicians marched in protest of, that, of the cobblestone being knocked down. Social Enterprise Cafes, Token, The Complex, Proper Order, I could go on. But anyway, I also, as I say, have been a journalist in this position and was kind of expecting the begrudgery and lo and behold, that did come both on Twitter and elsewhere. It doesn't like the Irish Times, Hugh Linehan giving out, giving out screams about it, particularly about the architecture of the area, saying how much he hates the look of the place. Although I suppose architecture is a subjective opinion a lot of the time as to what people like the look of at or don't look at. He certainly did. I I don't think it does us any favours to give out about the place we live in. I stand by that Smithfield is a very cool spot. Um, and judging by Time Out readers and subscribers, it was voted. I, I checked to make sure that this list wasn't just numbered, but ordered. And so um, it was voted the second best in the world. And so that's it. OK, Kieran, what do you think of Smithfield? Uh, I wouldn't be a fan, I have to be perfectly honest. I find it a bit windswept and uh, not windswept and interesting, but windswept and a bit a bit dull. I do like the cobblestone. Like my, my father-in-law's a bluegrass musician. He plays there every Saturday afternoon. So the pub I've been in, I think it is one of the best uh, music pubs in Ireland, let alone Dublin. But I think there's a great cinema <laughs> up there as well. What's that? Sorry, it's a great cinema there as well. Yeah, the, well, the lighthouse, yeah, fabulous cinema. Um, like I'm actually going there on Sunday, you know. So, so I, I, it has good stuff going for it. I do know that Hugh Lederhead lives in Marino, where I live, which I would say is the coolest place in Dublin. And I would also note that the National Geographic Traveller magazine in 2017 uh, voted Donegal as the coolest place in the world, and I'd fully support that. Of course, Kate, I also noticed that it's a part of Medellin in Medellin in Colombia, mm-hmm. which was voted the number one coolest place, uh, which is a bit of a change in image from the time when Pablo Escobar was running a global narcotics empire from there and killing anyone who crossed him. Certainly. Now, I've never been to Colombia at all, um, but I've heard a lot of very trendy people go to Medellin in the past uh, couple of years. So I, they must have had a stamp on it that people must be talking about things we don't know. But um yeah, I stand by my decision. Smithfield is very cool and far cooler than Ranala. 
<laughs> I don't know, I'd have a liking for Ranla, but then I do live on the <laughs> south side. Okay, we need to take a break. Kieran Cunningham and Kate Mulder stay with us. 087 4100 gives you the last word by text or by WhatsApp, particularly gives your views on Smithfield in Dublin. Colin says, if Smithfield is the second coolest place on earth, then the train station at Limerick Junction is a sun-soaked exotic beach resort. Okay, Kate Mulder and Kieran Cunningham are with us. And let's talk about Fermoy in North Cork. Hopefully, thankfully, I think it avoided uh, the flooding that we've had in East Cork. And I think it had had experiences in the past, but does have some flood relief. But yet, while East Cork has suffered in the floods, the people of Fermoy are outraged about what, Kate? Yeah, God love them. Bad um, bad week to be a Corkonian. So... There was a description of Fermoy on the big red chair on Graham Norton, which we all know very well. So a woman named Zoe from a Scottish native, but lived in Ireland for 20 years. When she was asked where, um, Graham, obviously a proud Corkman, uh, said Fermoy in Cork and then went on to describe it as a horrible, horrible town. Uh, Norton, who's from Bandon himself, um, replied, I imagine a bit perplexed, saying it's got a giant pencil into it, in it, referring to the former Faber-Castell factory. And she replied, it's got a bridge if people want to jump off it. Now, I don't know what brought her to Ireland, what, why she has these connotations, but apparently people were calling up Graham Norton roaring crying um, that their little town, their beautiful town, I believe, was dismissed in such a way. OK, I haven't been through for Moise, uh, Kieran, since uh, the motorway went into place, allowing people to bypass Fermoy, which you used to have to go through on the Cork-Dublin road. But should people get upset about something that's said on a show like that? Are they much better advised to simply ignore it? Well, you know, my, my short answer would be they shouldn't. But at the same time, it's different if you're from the place. And I think if somebody said it about my own home place, I think, you know, you know, that your hackles might be up a little bit. But, you know, going so far as, you know, as politicians doing a bit of grandstanding over it or the Tidy Towns Committee saying they're going to send a letter as a protest or whatever. Now, that's a bit like if we were watching it and this was said about Huddersfield or Cardiff or, you know, anywhere in England or Wales or Scotland. Now, we wouldn't pass any heed, but, you know, it's because it's some, some place that we know and that people here are familiar with, and particularly the locals, their their backs are up. But I would say, uh, I would say Graeme Norton's a little bit amused at the, at the back of it. OK. Now, um, the Britney Spears biography is to be released next week, Kate. What should we expect from it? How much interest is there likely to be in it? We should expect a few bad days for Justin Timberlake, I believe. Um, they obviously famously went out when they were um, in their late teens and early 20s, I believe. And I believe there is a lot written about that relationship, including what she claims she got an abortion. Um, she claims cheating rumours, um, a breakup over text message. It seems like a pretty bad time to be Justin Timberlake. Um, and then there's also, obviously, she had the highly... Um, highly publicised conservatorship arrangement with her family um, and primarily her father. So there's obviously going to be a lot written about that and then about the Britney Spears we knew as a teenager, bright and plucky and Mickey Mouse Club and also the Britney Spears we know that shaved her head. So I expect a lot of juice to be found. And when I said biography, it's actually an autobiography. It's a Mm. memoir. So this is her chance to tell her story because I think it's fair to say, Kate, over the years she has felt that uh, she had a lot of that power taken away from her. Absolutely. And as we see time and again with women in the media, especially women who kind of came into the media as child stars, they do have a lot of power stripped from them. And Britney was kind of at that stage in the 90s and noughties where we didn't really have the language and understanding that we know now what it does to a person. So with a conservatorship, 
We don't know how much she needed it. We don't know whether people around her took advantage of her in that situation. We don't know. There are, of course, a lot of several astonishing claims in the back of this book, um, including that she was forced contraception and other medications against her will. Um, But I primarily I'm excited to see Brittany on her own terms and I'm looking forward to reading it myself. Okay, Kieran Cunning, I suppose, you know, we might forget it now, but there was a period where she was a global superstar, wasn't she? Oh, absolutely. She was huge. Like she was, um, she's probably in the level that Taylor Swift is at now. And I think there is a comparison there sometimes that with pop music, uh, particularly with female performers and a lot of the, 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 the biggest performers in pop over the years have been female that there's a snobbery and they're not taken as seriously by the supposed, uh, you know, the the real music people, and that the, they are inf- infantilized. You know, no matter what age they are, like Britney Spears came came to prominence very young. You know, initially the Mickey Mouse Club, as you say, in her early teens. But even when she's well into her twenties, and uh, she was still being treated as a child. And I think it's a very dangerous way to treat anyone. And you know, I see even now like the the Taylor Swift concerts. Uh, would just break a, a concert film, would just break in all sorts of records. And uh, I saw Mike Scott uh, tweeted a picture. He took his daughter to it, and she was dancing up the front with a lot of other uh, little girls. And like, and the joy they were taken out of it—it's incredible. And uh, Mike has gone on record as saying he thinks she's the best songwriter in the world. But there's so many of Mike's generation in music, and uh, one of them I saw dismiss her as dreary pop. And there is that snobbery there, and it doesn't really stand up. And I think this the Spears story, you know, is a, is a cautionary tale. Kate, as well, is that another reason maybe that Taylor Swift is so admired by so many people, and not just women, that it's not just music that people are enjoying. There's this sense that she is a strong woman in control of her own destiny. Absolutely. Like, as Kira was kind of alluding to, it's utter misogyny everywhere, but very much so in the kind of media and, and songwriting world as well. Britney Spears was victim to it. Sinead O'Connor was victim to it. They all are. Taylor Swift has um, taken a stand against many causes, which she started as a country star, which was was kind of the death knell for country stars at one stage. Um, so, yeah, she is seen as a woman who is taking back um, her music and her power. And we're finally in a place where we're able to appreciate a strong woman like that. Uh, Kieran, were you one of those habitees of the kitchen nightclub during the 1990s in Dublin in a Clarence Hotel? Oh, well, if you were in the kitchen and you remembered you weren't there, is that what this, I don't know. I, I think it might have been there once. I, I don't really remember. I think Joy's was more where I uh, unfortunately ended up a few times. I did end up in the Clarence once after a wedding and... Uh, uh, we, uh, we seven a friend. We ended up gate crashing a music business party, and I, I found myself sitting next to Keith Allen, uh, the Lily Allen's father, the the actor and comedian. And I asked him what he did, so I don't. Uh, <laughs> I didn't recognize. Did him he take? Did he take offense that you didn't I don't know? Think he was overly impressed. No, no, no. He was grand. Like he t- talked away. I think probably uh, maybe he thought I was messing with him, but uh, I, I genuinely didn't recognize him. But I, I always found it a bit strange about you two in that um, they were particularly Bono and the Edge. They're businessmen as much as they're musicians. You know, there's not many. I think the Rolling Stones, particularly J- Mick Jagger, is very similar in that regard. In you know, there's not many musicians. You know, that want to buy hotels and invest in property and you know get get involved in various businesses. But the, the, that's always been part of the you two 
model since the late 80s. And uh, it, it does seem a kind of a relic of the Celtic Tiger in a way, and maybe it is the end of that era. But the kitchen itself, it closed its doors a long, long time ago. I think Bertie might have been Taoiseach then. Yes, Clarence Hotel being sold by Bono and the Eng to Paddy McKillen Jr. and Matt Ryan, who were the two men behind the press-up group. But it does sort of bring us back to the start, Kate, because I just noticed that um, Bono would have been one of the strongest voices coming out immediately attacking the Hamas attack on Israel. And whereas Paddy Cosgrave has got himself in trouble by taking the side, effectively, the Palestinian people and condemning what Israel has been doing in response, not perhaps giving full cognizance to the involvement of Israeli investors in the tech sector. Bono has been a massive investor in the tech sector and he probably realised as well, as well as him personally horrified by what Hamas did, uh, that the, the Israeli response and the American response in the tech community would be as it was. We will leave it there with the week trending. Thank you very much, Kate Mulder, for coming into studio. Kieran Cunningham, uh, Chief Sports Writer of the Irish Daily Star. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today.